Pursuing Justice is produced by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. Develop the skills and knowledge you need to advocate for pro bono clients, including asylum seekers and other immigrants, with PLI's timely programs. Explore current and upcoming immigration programs available live and on demand at pli.edu slash pro bono. It really does break my heart to think that um, so many people who deserve asylum may not get it because they are alone in it um, and just don't know how to fill out the forms, don't know what they need to do, even if, you know, they rightfully should be able to get it. With the withdrawal from Afghanistan, Americans have been asked to think quite a bit this year about people in desperate situations looking for a safe place to live and hoping the United States can be that place. Requesting asylum is one way that people who are already physically in the U.S. can get permission to stay when it is no longer safe for them to stay in their home country. But the process of seeking asylum and the law on when it will be granted is far from simple. Pro bono lawyers can make all the difference for people requesting asylum. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. To learn what it is like to handle an asylum pro bono case, we talked with Amelia McGowan of the Mississippi Center for Justice and three lawyers from Foreman Watkins in Jackson, Mississippi. And to give us a chance to get to know all of them, I asked each to tell us one thing that even the people who know them would find surprising. My name is Mitch McDuffie, um, and my practice is primarily in defense litigation. Um, I actually spend probably as as much as 30 or 40 percent of my time on the plaintiff side of the V, though, um, where the firm has sort of pushed into uh, taking on business tort cases, and it's all litigation. In terms of uh, interesting things about me, Peyton will know this. But most people will not. And it's that I learned to ride a bicycle when I was 30 years old. So there you go. I heard someone talking about a theory that the most important thing you can do as an adult is be willing to be a beginner at things. Courtney, could you go next? I'm Courtney Hunt, and um, I work with Mitch and Peyton here at Foreman Watkins. And like Mitch said, I do mostly defense litigation of various kinds. Um, I've been here almost five years now. Before that, I actually worked um, at the organization Amelia is now at, although we did not overlap there. And I guess one thing I don't find this surprising about myself, but recently I told people um, at lunch that I had gone skydiving, and it surprised people. Um, Peyton, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, my name is Peyton Smith. Like Mitch and Courtney, I work here at Foreman Watkins. My practice is uh, mostly focused in Louisiana. I'm based in Jackson, Mississippi, Barden, Mississippi, and in Louisiana. We do work on both plaintiff and defense side. 
a lot of commercial litigation, just kind of general litigation, really, kind of anything that, that walks in the door. And one thing, different people know one of these facts about me, but usually people are surprised to learn uh, that I have the rare combination of hobbies uh, that includes duck hunting on one side and writing poetry on the other side. I don't know. That sounds very Ernest Hemingway to me. That's excellent. Oh, fantastic. And Amelia, would you introduce yourself? Sure, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me on. My name is uh, Amelia McGowan. I'm uh, the Immigration Campaign Director at the Mississippi Center for Justice. Uh, my office, our office is in Jackson, Mississippi. We have other offices in Indianola and Biloxi, Mississippi. And I also teach the immigration uh, clinic at Mississippi College School of Law. And um, I focus specifically on asylum appellate representation. So I represent asylum seekers before the Board of Immigration Appeals and the Federal Circuit Courts of Appeal. I think one interesting fact maybe that would surprise people is that if I had not gone into immigration law, um, kind of my, my, one of my sort of secret dreams is to become a maritime lawyer. Um, I did a study abroad in Panama in 2005, <laughs> and I've just always thought it would be the coolest thing. I went to Tulane Law School, which is really heavily focused on maritime law. So that's kind of my secret dream, maybe one day to do that. All right. I feel like I know you all a little bit better now. So Amelia, for Folks who are listening, I think people have a general sense that there's asylum in the United States for people who are fleeing their home countries for various reasons. But give us a, a little bit of a primer on what um, what is involved in an asylum case and what the lawyer's role is. Absolutely. Um, so asylum, is, as you might imagine, is a pretty complicated process. Um, and it really depends on where you are, what your circumstances are when you're coming to the United States, kind of what your process will look like. So just a general overview of asylum. Asylum is to protect people from persecution. And persecution varies kind of depending on what circuit you're in, the very specific definition, what that might include. But generally includes things like violence. It includes the deprivation of means of living. It can include threats in some circuits. And it has to be persecution either that you've suffered or that you hold a well-founded fear of um, on the basis of some protected ground. Now, those protected grounds are named in the, the protocol relating to the status of refugees. It's a treaty um, to which the U.S. is a party. And those protected grounds are your race, your religion, your national origin, your political opinion, or your membership in a particular social group. Um, now, when most people think about asylum, they think about political protection, right? People who are political dissidents. And so many of our clients are people who are seeking protection based on their political opinion. But we've also had some clients who have faced persecution based on their religion. Uh, we represented, for example, a Nigerian pastor fleeing Boko Haram in Nigeria. We also represent people who are fleeing based on their race or nationality. So um, many of our clients, some of the clients with whom our pro bono partners are working, are indigenous in their countries and face persecution because of their indigenous identity. Another important component of asylum is that either the state can be persecuting you, um, other people are fleeing private persecutors, such as domestic abusers, but the state is either unable or unwilling to protect them. So that's cases of domestic violence, people fleeing cartel or gang violence, for example, fall under that category. That was great. I can tell you're experienced at giving that primer on asylum law. So what is the role of a lawyer 
in helping someone to make that asylum claim? It varies depending on where the person is in the process. So people can face what's called defensive asylum. They don't have an immigration status in the United States. They're placed in what we used to call deportation proceedings, now called removal proceedings, and are basically using asylum or some related protection as a defense to stay in the country. So we go to immigration court with that person and raise asylum or related protections as a defense. So that includes filing an application and exhibits and actually going through trial on behalf of that person and with that person. There's also affirmative asylum that some of our pro bono partners work on. So those are folks who came to the United States, have some kind of immigration status, and seek asylum as well. Now, unlike immigration proceedings, unlike defensive asylum, these proceedings are not adversarial. You are with your client and an interpreter, if necessary, in front of an asylum officer in an asylum office. So it's basically an office setting. You know, I think for most people, it's far less stressful to be in that setting. So that's kind of another way to seek asylum. If people who are seeking asylum in that circumstance don't prevail, their cases are usually sent to immigration court. So they'll have a second bite of the apple, but then it becomes adversarial. So I just want to make sure that listeners have a clear sense of some of the terms that we're using. So when you talk about status, right, that's very specifically talking about you had some kind of lawful permission to be here, which could be a very short term lawful permission or it could be. I guess once if you have legal permanent residency, is that considered that's considered an immigration status, right? Yes, it's a permanent status. Yes. As opposed to um, what they call non-immigrant statuses. And that could be something like um, just as you mentioned, like a tourist visa, a student visa, certain work visas can be non-immigrant statuses or temporary statuses. And so we're here today because the Mississippi Center for Justice has um, a pretty robust pro bono program for uh, lawyers to volunteer their time to work on asylum cases. When you all are looking for pro bono attorneys, like what do you look for? What do you want in a pro bono attorney who's going to do an asylum case for you? Well, first of all, we're looking for enthusiasm because and dedication because these cases, as our friends at Foreman Watkins will, will tell you, can last a very long time. Um, you know, some of our friends at Former Watkins have been working on cases for years because deportation cases, defensive asylum, you know, because of the court backlogs, the client may be in proceedings for two or three or maybe more years. So first of all, it takes a tremendous amount of dedication. Now that comes with a benefit. It comes with a benefit because you get time to learn about your client, learn about the case, learn about asylum law, but it is it is a long time. So it, it requires a lot of dedication. Um, also, many of our pro bono attorneys who are taking on cases at first may not have asylum experience, but that's okay. We're looking for kind of just enthusiasm to learn and enthusiasm to kind of get to work with your client, get to know your client. And all of our attorneys have done that. We have been so impressed and really thankful for the great pro bono support we've gotten, especially from Florence Watkins. What I loved about talking with Courtney, Mitch, and Peyton from Foreman Watkins was their total honesty about what led each of them to take on these pro bono cases. They all had different reasons, and it was a good example of how a firm's pro bono program can effectively meet a variety of goals for its attorneys. All right. 
right, folks from Foreman Watkins, let's let's talk about your experience doing asylum cases as pro bono, which is different. Right. I think it's pretty easy to say that it's different from doing commercial litigation, which is what you all said you specialize in. Uh, so let's start with the before. What what drew you to take on a pro bono case and what drew you to take on this kind of pro bono case? Uh, and why don't we start with Courtney? I've always been inclined to do pro bono work. Our firm established a pro bono committee right around the time that I joined the firm, um, and I serve on that committee. And one of the things that we did was try to find partnerships with organizations um, that would be sources of pro bono cases that our attorneys would be interested in, um, just to facilitate that process. Because um, a lot of times, you know, even if there's information out there um, through listserv emails and that sort of thing, offering opportunities people sometimes have a hard time paying attention to those emails, kind of processing that information and actually taking that step of signing up for a case. Um, And so we were trying to find ways to kind of feed our attorneys um, cases more directly that might be of interest. Um, And so one of the areas that we thought would be of interest to attorneys here generally um, was immigration. And um, because we knew Amelia, we reached out and established that partnership. I was interested in immigration, maybe in part because my family, you know, I come from an immigrant family. The news about the situation um, with immigration around that time, I was definitely particularly interested. Um, And yet I still don't know if I would have necessarily gone and like sought an immigration case short of having that partnership with Amelia. It was easier for me to do that because I was getting a case from somebody I knew through the firm. It was more directly offered to me um, and in a way where I kind of felt like, this is not only for the client and not only for me, but it's also I want the firm to you know have a good uptake. I don't want to let the firm down in terms of you know not being able to accept the cases that we want to accept collectively. And so it kind of felt more like a part of a bigger picture than just me individually going out and taking something. I also think that because of the way the partnership worked, Amelia sent blurbs about the individuals that they were trying to find representation for. And I think Getting that kind of personal glimpse and having a sense of what was needed really helped to motivate me to accept a case, even though it was definitely outside of my prior experience, a little bit intimidating because of how intricate immigration law is and how foreign it was to me. Those are some of the reasons that I ended up um, signing up to take one. So it sounds like a lot of important things aligned, right? It was you had an interest in doing pro bono. You had an interest in the new pro bono um, structure at the firm being really successful because you were involved in that. The firm did a good job of bringing you cases um, so you could really think about it and easily choose to get involved. And then something you got, I'm assuming in an email, really connected with you personally. Right. That's absolutely true. And I think that part of the analysis also was the fact that we had that partnership with MCJ and Amelia, where I knew that there would be support. I knew Amelia personally. I knew that she was an awesome attorney and, you know, she was going to be available to answer questions and kind of talk me through to make sure I wasn't messing up my client's life. Because obviously these are very high stakes situations. You don't want to be taking something and then completely wrecking their chances of being able to stay in this country when it's so important. So all of those things, I think, um, were significant parts of my being willing to take this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Peyton, what about you? What drew you to do one of these cases specifically? Yeah. So, you know, for me, I would echo a lot of what Courtney said, right? For me, I 
you know, I've always had an interest in, in pro bono work when I was in law school. You know, if you had asked me my one L a year, what type of law I was going to practice, I would have told you human rights law. You know, I spent time working uh, at an NGO in Uganda uh, one summer in law school and loved it. But, you know, you know, at the end of the day, for a variety of reasons, I wound up you know back here in Mississippi and have always kind of had my eyes out for opportunities. And, and this case in particular um, was appealing to me. You know, I was probably the target audience for for what, as Courtney described it, trying to kind of feed lawyers um, pro bono cases, right? I had an interest and a desire to do it, but finding a, a way to fold that into my daily practice was going to be difficult. And when I got the, the email about um, these asylum cases with kind of the personal blurb about the clients, you know, realizing that how impactful an asylum case can be on a person's life. I was drawn to the high stakes, but also at the same time felt like I had the assurance, um, you know, the structure uh, with Amelia there to, to make sure that I was doing it well. And because, you know, we want to do work and we want to do it well and have have a case that, you know, we're going to be laying up late and working nights and weekends on these things to try to fold it into our day-to-day practice that it requires us. Uh, to kind of have the fire and the passion to see see the result, right? And so that having those high stakes helped us there. But then also knowing that Amelia was there and MCJ was there to support us to answer the questions we had, which we answered a lot. But you know, uh, she, she held our hand the whole way through and, and made sure that that we could uh, do a good job. And so those two things kind of combined uh, to make it a really attractive opportunity. That's such an, an important insight that for you, you were drawn to the fact that it was high stakes litigation and, and sort of knowing that that made it worthwhile, that you could look yourself and your family in the eye and be like, there's a reason I'm not here yet, home yet, because I'm, I'm working on something that really matters. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you, it is. You're sacrificing family time, right, to work on these cases a lot of time. But, you know, my family was bought in, too, right? They, they wanted the same thing we wanted. Like, we, we cared about the clients and, and the story behind our case. Uh, was something that allowed everybody to be bought in. Uh, and, you know, I, I love the corporate clients I work for, but it's harder for my wife to be sympathetic to them sometimes when I'm having to burn the midnight oil on their cases. Great. All right, Mitch, what about you? So I'm different than them. I had no interest in, in immigration law, sort of historically. I, I'm going to piggyback a little bit off something that Courtney said. The firm when I came, had no pro bono policy at all. And I came about two years before Courtney did. And I had the privilege, I think, of helping draft what we have. And our whole theory was the firm was doing pro bono work, but it was really like you had to be personally motivated to go out and find it and do it. And we allow you to do it and we give you credit hours and stuff like that. But it's a heavy lift. So we had a different theory, which was, Let's just find partners. Um, let's poll our attorneys, figure out what they're interested in, and then go find partners doing that work. And we actually have a, sh- a strangely high number of people who speak foreign languages here. Um, and so unsurprising to me that that group of people, many of whom are Spanish speakers, and, and Spanish speakers are the predominant people seeking asylum or immigration status here in Mississippi, they, they wanted to be able to utilize their skill set. And so... That's kind of how that happened. I mean, as far as the firm goes, then, like Courtney said, 
the first time you get the offer, like you said, you want to be partners and that we're so excited about the first time you get the offer, you better take the cases, right? <laughs> like, so Peyton and I uh, worked on the same case. I had a motivation. I think litigators in general now get less time in court than they mm-hmm. used to 20 years ago. And so this was an opportunity for me to get FaceTime with a court. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a common thread for a lot of the pro bono partnerships that the firm has in other areas as well, is time on your feet in front of a judge mm-hmm. and, and somebody listening to you talk and argue, which litigators uh, sort of hanker for and think they're going to get, but often don't for a long time. And the third motivation for me is that Peyton and I go way back. Um, we were in law school together. And and it was an opportunity for us to take on the case. And it was just the two of us working with Amelia. And it wasn't that I had a soft spot for immigration work or that I had a particular interest in immigration work. It was an opportunity for the firm to sort of step out on the right foot. It was an opportunity for me to, to do something I knew I was going to get time both briefing and arguing. And then it was time to work on something with, with a friend, which is always one of my motivations. So the way it works. So that's how I ended up there. You all have done such a good job naming pretty good section of the reasons why people close the deal and take a case. So to the to the extent that you're able, with respect for um, you know, clients and their privacy, can we talk about the cases that you've done? Yeah. Mitch, Peyton, let's say you guys did one together, right? That's right. Yes. So we represented... Uh, we handled uh, several different immigration cases, but the uh, the asylum case that we worked on together, which was the one that certainly was the heaviest lift for us, involved a family of uh, five Iraqi Christians who were fleeing ISIS and seeking asylum in the U.S. And so that was kind of the basic factual setup uh, going in uh, to the litigation. All right. And so they were fleeing. So were you doing, a, um, as Amelia described it, were you doing a, a defensive asylum claim or were you doing an affirmative claim? When we stepped in, it was a defensive claim. But, but when they came in the country, they put in an asylum application and had gotten the no and then been given their notice of removal. And that's when we came into the case. And at that point, they had an asylum application and Peyton and I kind of met with them and it was, um, it was thin. I mean, a lot of times I, I think others could probably attest to this. A lot of times when people are filling out their, I think familiar, it's an I-589 or something like that. That's it. But when they're filling that out, you're supposed to put a lot of evidence in. And, and generally people coming into the country just don't have that stuff at their fingertips. And, so we had to, over the course of time, we filed an amended application on their behalf, putting in a lot of the proofs that the court wants to see and things like that. Um, so we we were in a defensive posture and, and had had an ICE representative opposite us. I have to say, not knowing anything about this family or their asylum application, I can imagine that they might have thought, well, we're Iraqi a country that the U.S. has been heavily involved in for a very long time. And um, we're fleeing ISIS, a group that the United States has been actively involved in uh, fighting against for a very long time. Uh, So obviously you're going to understand why we're here and why we need asylum. What do you think was going on there? Why wasn't this an easy 
sell and, and you had to go through a full litigation process to help them? I'll jump in and let, and then Peyton can add to it. One of the features of the system that Amelia uh, pointed out, and it is a benefit to attorneys taking on cases, is the time that it takes. One of the hardships of the system is that your your uh, status, it's not, it's not at the time that you put your application in, did you deserve asylum? It's at the time you're hearing, did you deserve asylum? Right. You got to you got to come and say, I have a reasonable fear of ISIS. Right. But the problem is they came when ISIS was rolling into northern Iraq and that's when they fled. Our hearing was in 2019, which was five years later. So the question becomes, do you still have a reasonable fear of persecution? And then that was our hardship. I think there was a strong, compelling case that the answer was still yes. But that was some of the lift that we had to do in the briefing, especially in putting on evidence and kind of digging back through country reports and things like that was to say, no, no, they still have a reasonable fear of persecution. I also think, you know, we were in the Fifth Circuit, right? And, and as Amelia kind of mentioned, every circuit views asylum a little bit differently. The law is going to be applied a little bit differently in those circuits. The Fifth Circuit includes Texas. Texas, obviously, is dealing with a different type of immigration problem than maybe other uh, circuits in the country. And so that, I think, informs some of the standards that apply throughout the circuit. And so it's a, it's a little bit more difficult if you happen to have your hearing scheduled inside the Fifth Circuit as opposed to some other circuit where uh, there's kind of a heightened standard for um, achieving asylum. And so I think that played into the analysis, right? Their application was was kind of thin. Uh, you know, I, I, I think they filled it out themselves, and so they did the best they could. But, you know, it's a very complicated form. It's a very complicated system. If you fill out one thing wrong, you can be denied because the, the assumption is maybe that the information you're giving is not accurate even though the real reason is, you know, you didn't put in all the information because it's asking for copious amounts of information. So it's a very difficult process for individuals to take on without the help of attorneys who understand how important it is to kind of be perfect with the accuracy of your information and to know all the little, I don't want to call them traps, but they kind of feel that way sometimes, right? Little areas where you can mess up this application by filling this in wrong and, uh, and you'll get denied for that reason. One thing that Peyton mentioned about the, the different, and, and Amelia has alluded to this as well, the different standards that can apply circuit to circuit. Mississippi's kind of in a unique spot, which means this firm is in a unique spot. There is no IJ here. So if you're in Louisiana or you're in Texas or something like that, your case is going to get referred to the immigration court in your state. Mississippi sits in between Memphis and New Orleans, and those are in different circuits. So the standards are different. And Amelia may be able to flesh out how that's done, but I think the case assignments are luck of the draw. Like there's nothing that says, well, if you're in yep. Starkville, which is kind of northern-ish, you're going to end up in, in Memphis. Our, Peyton and I had, our clients were in northern Mississippi and were referred to New Orleans. Whereas I think, think, Courtney was in Memphis. 
I don't think I was aware that there was such a split between the circuits and how they approach um, the the individual cases and asylum cases. Uh, but it sounds like what I'm hearing is that it's a pretty big difference. Sometimes it can be, especially in really nuanced areas. So, for example, circuits disagree on whether a threat can constitute persecution. And if a circuit, it generally can't. Well, in other circuits, it can. And when you're talking about, you know, things like cartel violence and gang violence, you know, that can really make the difference between, you know, persecution and not. So once the lawyers know which circuit they are in and what standard is going to apply, then they have to introduce the right evidence. Despite the fact that I've been trying cases for 25 years, I was a little surprised at the kind of evidence that is needed to succeed in an asylum case. You alluded to this a little bit, Mitch, but Mitch and Peyton, like what what kind of evidence did you have to collect and and put in um, for the hearing? It was a really wide range. We, we obtained some statements from um, individuals who uh, knew our clients back in Iraq, um, who had some firsthand knowledge of what their situation was and some of the, the things they faced. We also, I mean, so there was kind of the very specific and particular evidence related to our clients, but there was a lot of evidence really that related to telling the story about the situation in Iraq with respect to ISIS and with respect to persecution, uh, religious persecution, because, you know, that was something that in their application, you know, I think it's been well documented, right, that there's been a lot of persecution uh, at the hands of ISIS and, and atrocities that have been very well publicized. That information wasn't attached to their application, right? And so we needed to tell that story. We needed to tell the story not only of what the situation was when they came to the U.S., but also tell the story about what the situation was currently. And so there are country reports that you can utilize to tell that story. There's media reporting that you can utilize. And Amelia, I mean, you'll probably hear us say this a lot uh, this morning, but you know, Amelia was invaluable in helping us identify resources that can help us educate ourselves about the situation and educate the court. To just piggyback off Peyton, the other bits were their contribution to their general society here in Mississippi. So we had statements from people here in Mississippi, all of whom said, you know, we go to church with them and they're lovely and et cetera, et cetera. We had to sort of beef up their testimony. They saw a blank that's like two lines long and they filled in the blank, right? When they filled out their application. But in fact, you can you can attach addenda, right? And an attorney is the one who's gonna be like, you should keep talking. You could You can say more. <laughs> So we fleshed out their their statements about what had happened to them over the course of time at various stops because they had they had left one town in Iraq, they had gone to another, they had been pushed out of that town. You know, so they, there was a process to this um, that was more robust than what they had put in their initial application. And so that was part of it. There were times when they came to our office and Peyton and I sat with them for a number of hours. Um, and we went to their home and sat with them and gathered more information that way. Yeah, and I would just add, like, the undercurrent of it all, right, is essentially to to establish their credibility. I mean, it, it's mm. easy to beat up the system, right? But they are, they're flooded with all kinds of <laughs> applications, and their task is to sort out fact from fiction, essentially. And so 
what we, our task as lawyers was to try to bolster the credibility of our clients and the story that they were telling as much as possible, be that with the situation in Iraq and for them personally to say, look, these people, they belong here. They are in danger if you send them back and they will be valuable members of society here if you allow them to stay. And, and they were and they are, uh, thankfully. Another thing um, is that I think an, the, an important role for attorneys is to focus the information that's being provided, the evidence that's being introduced on the issues that are legally relevant, because yes. a lot of times yes. people have, you know, what matters to them and what really, what they think about a lot are all these issues that um, are truly important, but they're not relevant to the legal analysis. And so, you know, if they're, if people are left to kind of create their own narratives, um, provide their own testimony without any guidance, it's easy to miss what's going to matter to the judge. And so that's something that uh, I worked a lot with my client on is just kind of focusing in on the things that we needed to establish legally. That is a huge point, Courtney, that it's all the time one of the things we're doing as lawyers, right? And it seems like that would be exceptionally important here. Um, so Courtney, talk to us about the case. Actually, before we do that, I just want to make sure that everybody heard what I think I heard Peyton say, which is you were successful and the whole family is, was able to stay. And Yes, that's correct. So we, yeah, we, we succeeded <laughs> in, in obtaining asylum for, for the entire family, all five. And so that was obviously a very happy day that we could talk about, you know, for a long time. But the short, the yeah. short version was, yes, we won. Uh, and it was an incredible relief to both uh, us and them. Yeah. And how long did it take from when you took the case until you got the win? I looked it up. Yeah, two years exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. funny. I mean, these these cases, they are, it's hurry up and wait, right? You know, you get the case and it's very emotional to really plug into at first. Uh, and then we we kind of interviewed the clients. We started pouring ourselves into the case and then we waited for a really long time. And then you kind of have this slow ramp up towards the hearing and then you have kind of this other, another intense emotional event. But in the interim, right, the, the wait is kind of excruciating and talking to the clients throughout that process and trying to help them understand, you know, on one hand, it's good that the wait is nice on some sense, right? They, they're here in the country today while we're waiting, which is better than having a ruling sending them back to Iraq. On the flip side, though, is it's just kind of psychologically taxing to know that that's looming out there, that they may get sent back and that they can't really re-enter, they can't really engage with life in their local community as much as they'd want to, because there's always the threat that, that they're going to be pulled right out of it. And, and hearing them talk about what that looked like and what their plans are if they win, but they can't really start that process because they don't know if they're going to win. And they may be back in Iraq in a year um, was, was tough. Yeah, I, I can imagine that that's really gut wrenching. Okay, we're going to we're going to come back to that. I want to hear about Courtney about the asylum case um, that you've worked on. What can you tell us about your case? My client was a um, woman from Guatemala, and um, she had fled the country due to persecution based on um, political opinion. It actually was not a true political opinion necessarily, but we argued that it was an imputed political opinion because it was clear to us um, from you know the way things happened that um, she had received threats and I mean it was it got to a very high level of threats and risk um, to her life um, as a result of things that a political party attributed to her so we uh, it was also a defensive asylum case so in your case, 
that sounds like it must have been tricky because I, what I hear you saying is that you needed to prove that other people back in Guatemala thought she had political opinions that she didn't actually have and she was in danger because of what they thought, not anything that she had actually done or was a, or a political position that she was pursuing. Do I have that right? That's that's correct. Yeah. So that's a, a bit of a logic puzzle. It is. And it's really, it was a very specific situation due to her circumstances. But yes, it was it was a unique kind of situation. I mean, ultimately, a lot of the um, proof for this really came from her testimony. But we also did a lot of research into violence and murders related to politics um, in her region. Um, it is a very common thing, unfortunately. And so, you know, we were able to kind of pull together a lot of evidence that even though it sounds far-fetched, in reality, where she is from, um, this is very credible. And in fact, you know, this is what happened to her. Amelia also was able to point us to awesome resources in this case, not only related to country conditions generally, but to um, actual like expert declarations that we were able to enter into our case that actually like specifically addressed issues that my client was facing. So um, that was pretty awesome. I mean, it's just, I think having that partnership um, really enabled us to to do that. I think that, you know, without her support, um, I mean, it, it was a very time consuming case um, to do all that research, even with that. But I think, you know, her expertise and ability to you know, direct us in helpful directions was just invaluable. So Amelia, that's come up twice now. What are those resources that attorneys and asylum applicants can access to try to help prove their case? That's, to me, one of the most fun things about asylum is kind of digging into these country conditions and getting to kind of on a granular level. So there are a few great resources out there. Probably the best, in my experience, is University of California Hastings has a great resource. It's their Center for Gender and Refugee Studies, CGRS. They have a great resource. Basically, if you put in details about your case, they have a fantastic database of all kinds of resources from country conditions to expert declarations, you know, getting from the general to the very specific, as Courtney mentioned. Also, you know, I think that there are some journal articles, sort of academic journals that are really good at sort of addressing these very particular issues within particular countries. The UN also has some fantastic resources. So I'm going to ask Courtney the same question. I'm hoping that the answer is the same. Were you successful? Was your client able to stay? Yes, she was. And um, she was thrilled. I think for me, Peyton used the word relief. And I think that pretty much summarizes how I felt. Um, Because really, it felt like this was the outcome that should have come about. I had a lot of fear that it would not. But it was just a huge relief that, in fact, she was going to be allowed to stay. These cases have an intensity that gets dragged out over a long period of time. Yes, today, they can tell us that they won. Their clients are able to stay and rebuild their lives in safe communities. But they didn't know that when they were working on it. Even for a committed legal aid lawyer like me, that sounds hard. So I wanted to know what it was like for them to go through it. (laughs) 
So you actually led into the next thing that I wanted to talk about. I was going to use the dreaded F word, which is to ask you all, how did it feel to be doing these cases? How did it (laughs) feel to be hearing people describe trauma, to have people sitting on pins and needles for years? What was that like for you as the lawyers? I'm guessing that's a little bit different from the emotional content of the other work. Certainly. Yeah. So, you know, for us, you know, at our first meeting with our with our clients, we sat with them and they told us their story. And it was, you know, a horrible story right, of, of what they had endured in Iraq uh, before coming to the U.S. And then and then talking about kind of what this case meant to them. Uh, and as we were leaving, you know, the mother of the family just started weeping, you know, and, and it was really from fear. Right? I mean, she was just so scared that that it wasn't going to work out. And, you know, that was heartbreaking, you know, it was heartbreaking, you know, it was motivating. And during the course of the case, I think it also felt like a lot of pressure, really. I mean, you know, and and it's different kind of pressure, right? We feel pressure. That's what we do as our job. And we pour our heart and our soul to every case that we have. But this one felt different. You knew what was at stake, right? You know, at the end of the day, most of our cases our, our companies who are going to be just fine, you know, it, 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 you know, when when the dust settles. But we really didn't know what it would mean for them if they got sent back to Iraq, and so that was scary, right? You know, at the end of the day, we think we're good at what we do, and we had phenomenal support from Amelia, but you know, there's so much of it that was out of our control, and so you know, there were nights. It was a long process, right? There were plenty of days that we kind of forgot about the case because it was a year away from our hearing, and we had nothing to do. But then you'd be rolling along, and then one night it hits your mind that we got a hearing date coming in six months, and we don't know what's going to happen. And you know that's something that can keep you up at night. And so mm-hmm. uh, it, it was. It made us want to work hard to do everything we could to contr- to try to get the best outcome. But there was a lot of waiting and a lot of uncertainty. And I would definitely echo that that especially that last part that Peyton said. There's this time gulf right, where you get the case in, there was, it, it was gut-wrenching and really, really hard to have our initial meetings with the family. And um, I went up to visit them in their home and to, and to just sit with them and pray with them. And that part was hard. Um, and there's just no other way around that. It is so foreign and unlike uh, a contractual dispute or something like that. Even if you're representing a company that won't be fine, it's it's still there is not the immediacy of life and death that that this feels like, and I think is what's involved in an asylum claim so often. But then you do have this gap, and there's this old rule, right, that if you give a litigator six months, then they will not work on it until right before the deadline. No matter what the deadline is, they're not, you know, they're they're going to collapse it in and and that holds true often and mm-hmm. but then the difference i think a lot of the the feel difference in this is that there would be times when it would be saturday night you know a year and two months before our hearing and i would find myself trying to find articles about what's happening in their area in iraq and and sending stuff to peyton hey I remember uh, riding home and, and listening to the Daily and listening to the Daily on the way home, and they were talking about ISIS's current activities, right? And I'm like, 
furiously. I, I obviously I would never text and drive. I waited till uh, I was at a red light without question. But like texting Peyton, I'm like, you got to get, you got to listen to this. We need to get a transcript for this so that we can put it in. But I mean, there was no immediacy to to that need. It, it just there were times when it would hit you like a wave. Um, really, from an emotional perspective, to say like, we need to be working on this. But you know, there's really nothing you can do. So I do think the emotional piece of that, how it just sort of, it, it, it would just crop itself up, right? And it, it would sort of live in the back of your mind. And it lives in the back of your mind for a long time. I mean, these cases take a long time. And I'll, I'll add, you know, it, there, was, there was a piece of it that felt like because we were working an asylum case, right, which is something that Mitch and I don't do, uh, you know, they, uh. you get us a normal lawsuit and pretty much no matter what the subject matter is, we're going to feel a, a high level of comfort and kind of we know how this works. We know how to do this. Uh, we can put the train on the track and we're going to push it. Whereas, you know, during that, as Mitch described, the time golf, I think it's a perfect word for it. I can't count how many times I would walk in his office or he would walk in mine and it would be like, all right, so three things we need to get knocked out are this and that there's nothing else that we need to do like we just you felt like you were kind of out on a tightrope uh, hoping that there wasn't something we weren't thinking of that we needed to do we didn't want to drop the ball and again that was another you know having amelia there who we could call when we were feeling anxious to say okay this is what we're working on this is all we need right and she could you know calm us down and say no no y'all everything's fine y'all are on the right path was really helpful but, you know, that element of being outside of your comfort zone as a litigator, doing something totally different, um, definitely played into the anxiety, I'm sure. So, Courtney, what did it feel like for you to be working on a, a case like this? Yeah, I very much relate to everything Peyton and Mitch said. And I would add that with my client, it was very easy for me to identify myself with her. We were born the same year. Our children are about the same ages. She was a very real person who, you know, every time I spoke with her, it was a very emotional conversation because she was having to relive experiences that were traumatizing to her and live with real fear, not only for herself, but for her young child that had been born since and just, you know, what their future would hold. And so that weight and all the waiting involved, <laughs> definitely, um, they were difficult, but it ultimately, I mean, I think that those were the things that made this experience really rewarding at the same time. So yeah, I'm, I'm very thankful to have had that opportunity and to be, have been able to be involved in something that I'm thankful was successful. But even if it weren't, I think I would have felt very thankful to have been able to be there with her because it really does break my heart to think that um, so many people who deserve asylum may not get it because they are alone in it um, and just don't know how to fill out the forms, don't know what they need to do, even if you know they rightfully should be able to get it. That's such an important point, Courtney, that as lawyers, you're doing two things. One is you're trying to succeed. You're trying to win asylum so that people can stay and all the work. I don't know how anyone would ever do this without a lawyer. But the second thing you're doing is being someone's champion, which has value no matter what the outcome of the case is. To feel heard, to feel believed, to feel supported and to have a champion also matters. Yeah. And that actually reminds me, at our hearing pretty early on, the judge said something like, I think I already know what I'm going to do here. <laughs> and yes, my client, right. she 
wanted to tell her story. And it involved a lot of things. You know, like I said, I worked with her a lot to try to focus her on the issues that were going to matter legally. But, you know, all these other aspects meant a lot to her. And I and I felt like it was important for her to feel that she had had her day in court. Um, so when he said that he knew what he was going to do, I didn't know which way he was going to go on that. But I needed her to know that if her claim was denied, um, that she had been able to tell her story, that she felt like she had been fully heard. And so I think that was one of the roles I played was to make it so that she could keep talking <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and not to just be silenced when a judge said, OK, you know, that's all I need. Right. So that she gets heard. But also probably my least favorite thing in the world when the judge says, counsel, I've heard enough. And you're like, well, you have if I'm going to win. Right. (laughs) But if I'm not going to win, you definitely need to hear more. (laughs) Yeah. So let's move to the after. And and I'd love it if each of you could just maybe give a little bit of like if somebody was considering taking on one of these cases, what reflections would you have for them? If uh, an associate wandered into your office um, at Foreman Watkins and said, I get it, I get it, the firm wants me to do pro bono, but I'm, I'm considering cases and this blurb came over about an asylum case, what do you think? What, what kind of reflections would you share with that associate? I would say a couple of things. It is an incredibly rewarding, and I think Port- Courtney's point can't be missed, that almost regardless of outcome, your job maybe your number one job is to provide a voice for somebody who may, who, if they wouldn't be entirely silenced, would be severely diminished without counsel. And so if somebody walks in, if we've got associates walking in, um, the first thing I would say to them is you better understand the, the, the time that it's going to take you. You're talking about, I think, probably at minimum an investment of about 200 hours and of, of actual work time. There are ways to get involved in immigration law and in immigration representation that are less demanding in terms of time. And so one of the things I would tell an associate or anyone really considering this is to, to, to have an appreciation for what you're for what you're committing yourself to. The other thing is I would tell people to work in, in, in teams. Um, we're not all as talented as Courtney is. And so you should not, I would not recommend that and, and I think the firm now understands that better, that we've taken on a number of these uh, a number of these asylum cases and have led into appeals for some of them, that working in groups is, is going to be a real strength. And so I would tell if an associate walked in and said, I'm interested, I'd say, great, who's working with you? The other thing I would say is, if you don't have you in a million McGowan, you need to get one. Um, I mean, that, that, that's sort of a piece. If, you, if this isn't what you do, then you need, you are Linus in need of a blanket, right? Like you've got to, you've got to have it. And there are so many ways in which Amelia, and, and I would add um, Max, who is at MCJ, does a great job as well. The ways that they enable and facilitate their partners is really important. I think the emotional thing, look, I just think it's obvious on its face that like if you're considering doing this, it's going to be emotional. But it, I guess if I got the impression that somebody didn't, grasp that already, I would probably wear them out about that. (laughs) Because you can do it as long as you know what you're signing up for. I think that's right. You know, I think there are a lot of talented lawyers in this world, and they're capable of doing this work. They're capable of being available to their clients in a way that they're probably not emotionally available to, you know, a corporate client, even if you have a great relationship with them. 
you know, you can do all those things. You just need to know that that's what's going to be asked of you. Peyton, what are your what what reflections would you share? I would absolutely echo that. I would also add that if somebody needs to go out and get them an Amelia McGowan, they can't have our Amelia McGowan. She's got to stay here in Mississippi so nobody get any tracing of you. Okay. <laughs> the only thing I would add to that too is that if somebody's thinking about taking on the case, maybe two things. One, if you have family, you know what. Let them know. Talk to them about it, too, because, you know, having buy-in from them, I think, is going to be important because it is something. And at the end of the day, you know, our firm is very supportive of this work, but most of it's going to happen in conjunction with what you do on a day-to-day basis, with me, which means you're going to do it at night and on the weekends, right? And, um, you know, Mitch and I were both fortunate, and I know Courtney was, too, to have family who was bought in to the case. You know, to, to the extent you could give give information to our family members, right? They 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 bought into the cause as well, uh, so I think that's important. And I also think just yeah, the, the emotional piece is I think one that I would just underline for an associate and just say, look, lean into that. There's so many things that when you sit in a room with somebody who comes from somewhere like you know Iraq and is being persecuted by ISIS, right? That you real and and they're facing the very real threat of being sent back there. There's just so much of, that you can realize you take for granted every day, and so I think these cases also present an opportunity uh, to have your eyes open to that, right? Which is sometimes a difficult thing to have your eyes open to, but it can be a gift to you and to your family and to the people around you as well. And but it's going to be something that's going to impact you personally. Hmm. Courtney. I have very little to add because I think Mitch and Peyton um, did a great job. Um, but I would really echo what Mitch said about working with someone else being a really good idea. And obviously, that's something I did not do with this case. But I do think that that is um, very valuable. And I would definitely encourage people to do that to the extent possible. It's a good lesson, right, to share the load. Would all of you sort of after the person heard the things that you said knowing it's intense, knowing it takes a long time, knowing you're going to lean into it, knowing your family needs to be on board. Would you, if you had it to do over, would you do it again? Absolutely. For me, you know, that's, that's, that's no doubt. Yeah, I agree. I would definitely do another one. Mitch? Yeah. Especially if I, if you're saying I get to do it again, that means I won. So I'm in. (laughs) No, I would absolutely take another one of these cases on one of the things I would add, right, is that this was an incredible opportunity for Peyton and myself. I think Courtney would say the same thing. Um, We did extensive briefing. We sat in front of an IJ um, on more than one occasion and got to take lead examination on witnesses. You deal with opposing counsel. You do all these things. But if you're looking for a way to, to get experience as a litigator or to scratch an itch, um, if you're a transactional lawyer, this this is an incredible area where you can do some real good and you can get some real experience. So we don't try to dissuade our associates from taking these cases. We actually encourage them to do it. We just want them to do it in tandem with, with someone else. So it's not it's not just as Peyton said, and I think he was dead right, that, that it, is a, it is an opportunity for personal growth and reflection and a way to build your emotional intelligence. But it's also an opportunity to build you as a lawyer. Um, the more time you get in front of judges, almost at, at any level of any type, that's a benefit. And so this has been a great, great, great thing for our law firm, I believe. Such a great point. 
And why wouldn't you do something that would allow you to be a better lawyer and a better human at the same time? Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu/probono.